good. You doing all right? Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> hey, my name is Simon Stokes. Uh, I'm the RUF Campus Minister here. It's good to see you here tonight and uh, be with you. And I say, especially if you're here and it's your first time, I want to say especially welcome to you. Um, it's a beautiful thing to get to be together. And, you know, wherever you're coming from, the spectrum of faith or doubt or belief, um, however you're dealing with God or you feel like God is dealing with you, we're glad you're here with us. Um, I want to say especially, uh, put another plug for uh, Parents Weekend, if you come with your parents to that, uh, we will give you the tickets to the Duke UNC game, like comp them for free. Um, so come, uh, do that. I bought a block of tickets. Um, I'd love to give you tickets to that and your parents to that. Um, but you've got to come with your parents. <laughs> so um, I'd love for you to be there. Anyway, uh, this semester we're going through uh, the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to a church called Ephesus. And basically what he's doing is he's saying how excited he is about God's grace. How excited he is about God's unmerited love towards people in Christ. And so we're working our way through this letter. We're asking, what is it about grace that's so powerful and so important? And tonight we're looking at Ephesians 3. And this is Paul talking about the power of grace to reconcile the world. He says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let me pray for us and we get started. Jesus, we do thank you um, that you've given us this word. Um, we believe you're God. We believe that you speak to us because you love us. You desire a relationship with us to be known and for us to be known in you and in your love. God, help us to find that relationship tonight. Help us to find that love and to be found by you in that love. Um, Jesus, open your word so we can see and behold beautiful things in it. And God, may the words of my, med- of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, after World War II ended, one of the last Japanese soldiers to surrender was a man named uh, Anoto Hiro. And he had led three other men to the mountains of the Philippines. And two of those guys were shot and killed in shootouts with the police after the war had ended. One eventually surrendered to the authorities. And 
they had kept fighting despite the best efforts of both the Japanese and the Philippine governments to get these guys to stop. They had like dropped leaflets all over this mountain where they knew they were living, saying, hey, the war is over, you can put down your weapons, stop. And these guys said, you know, this is, this is fake, this is enemy propaganda, we're going to keep going. Uh, they had relatives send them letters and newspapers and all kinds of things and just left them on the mountain for these guys to find, saying, hey, the war is done. And they kept fighting. And eventually the way they got Anoto to stop fighting was they had his former commanding officer, who is now at this point a bookseller in Tokyo, dress up in his old military uniform, come to the mountain, and call the guy down out of the jungle to honorably discharge him. And when Anoto uh, kind of finally ended the war, or his war that he was fighting, he turned over his sword, several hand grenades, a still-functioning rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition. It was 1974. Uh, World War II ended in 1945. Uh, this guy had fought World War II almost on his own for almost 30 years by himself in the jungles of the Philippines, which is crazy, I know. But you hear that and you think, there has to be a really powerful story going on in that guy's life for him to keep fighting like that. Over who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, what's going on. He lived in this story and it shaped his actions in incredibly powerful ways. And what I want to say tonight is that you live in a story as well. That part of why you're at UNC is because you live in the story that says, you know, the way to get what you want in life and need in, and what you need in life is to go to college and go to a good college. And then you'll get a job and meet somebody and you're off to the races, right? And you, maybe you came to UNC and you were kind of a fan, but then you get into the story of UNC and do the basketball thing and you're walking around campus in the spring and the summer and the fall and it's not the winter, but it's beautiful <laughs> and like three seasons here. <laughs> and you love these people and you love this experience and you love this campus and you're wrapped in the story and... It shapes you in such powerful ways. And what I would say is you're shaped by a story all the time. And it shapes how you think about the world and how you think about yourself and it shapes what you do. And everybody's doing that all the time. Paul lives in a story. Paul starts this by saying he's in prison because he believes that the true story of the world is about God reconciling all things in Christ. And he believes the author of that story has called him in to that story in such a powerful way that he's called to reconcile people and proclaim that and live in it. I mean, think about how crazy that is. If Paul had been content to be a Jew telling Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah, he would have never gone to prison. He could have lived his whole life outside of prison. He could have avoided this thing. But he thought the story was otherwise. And he just couldn't help but be compelled by it and be shaped by it and live his life in it. And what I want to say is, what about this story could shape us? What about it could be compelling for us and shape the way that we think and live and do in the world? The way that you do school here, the way that you're going to do life one day outside of school, after college. What about the story of the gospel shapes us in that? Tonight I want to look at this, and I want to ask three questions about this. I want to ask, what's the mystery of the story? I want to ask, what's the revelation of the story? I want to ask, what's the glory of the story? 
mystery, revelation, and glory of the story. So what's the mystery of the gospel story? Paul says that, is a, that there is a mystery that's been made known to him. And mystery here is not like, uh, like who's done it? Who killed you know, the guy in the closet over there? Mystery, for Paul's terminology, is this truth that is so great and so wonderful and so impossible for us to fathom on our own that we can only know it if God makes it known to us. And thankfully, Paul actually tells us what that mystery is. He says that the mystery is that the Gentiles, that's people who are not Jewish, are fellow heirs, members, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's crazy, y'all. But most religions are concentrated in a people group, are concentrated in a place in the world, are concentrated in some sort of nation. I mean, Islam is primarily in the Middle East. Hinduism is primarily in India. Judaism is primarily for Jews. I mean, Christianity is for everybody. It's all over the planet. It is not confined to any ethnicity or nation or anything because it's not centered in a people or a place. It's centered in a person. It's centered in Jesus and his love for people. Look what Paul says here. He says in verses 8 and 9, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. He's saying God's got a story to tell. It's a mysterious story that's based in His grace. It's this beautiful mystery that God has revealed through the gospel. It's His love for people through Jesus. That through faith in Christ, people who are not Jewish have equal access and standing to God. Which can seem really like distant up there, right? But... Sometimes you can look at the Bible and look at Bible people and think, you know, I would never be close to God like David is. Like, God will always just be closer to Moses. Like, him and Moses hung out and, like, talked to each other face to face. They were boys. I'm never going to be tight with God like that. I'll never be tight with Jesus like Peter or John were. God will always like them better. But the reality of the gospel of grace is that God fellowships with us, loves us, delights in us, based on the same things that those people were fellowshipped and delighted in by as well, which is grace. God's unmerited, freely given love. Which means that God can hang out with you, love you, see you, deal with you, like any of the other people in the Bible. Like He will enjoy you and does enjoy you if you're one of His people, like he enjoys and loves Christ. Look, when people started to wrap their heads around the implications of that, they were like, this is crazy. Like, we, <laughs> we don't know what to do with this. Paul, go to jail. Like, you're crazy. But the point of this is, if it's not based on grace, then what's the point of even trying? I mean, we're all messed up. We're all broken. I mean, if it's not grace, you might as well just give up, right? But if God loves you based not on what you are and what you've done, but based on what Jesus is and what he's done, then it frees you to do some things. One, you can actually deal with your sin and the messiness and the brokenness and the darkness inside of you and the world because God isn't accepting you based on that or how you're dealing with that. God's accepting you based on Jesus. And so you can actually be honest with people and deal with these things that are going on in your life and not have to hide them. So it gives you incredible freedom to talk about yourself and be known by people. But it also gives you incredible security 
that you can be radically honest with people because what are they going to do to you? Can they kick you out? No. Like God invites you into the throne room of heaven to speak with him and to be dealt with by him and to be loved by him as a child. Like that's, that's security that you could never get on your own. So grace does some amazing things. It's also this mystery of reconciliation, right? The mystery of the ages, the purpose for which God made the universe was that he's going to reconcile all things in Jesus. It means that we don't have to be so self-involved. It means that the whole point of the universe is not you or me or what we think or what we do. It's about God's purposes worked out in your life and in the world, which means that people don't have to perform for you because God didn't make you perform for him. It means you can forgive people who've hurt you and wronged you and be reconciled to people like your roommate or the guy down the hall who's a jerk. It means you don't have to humble brag about how busy you are and how many things are stacking up on you like the rest of this campus all the time because you're not defined by your work or what you do. Bigger than that, you actually get to be an agent of reconciliation to call people into the story and to love people in it. Look, we live in a crazy divided world Crazy divided. Uh, We are closer to one another in terms of communication and how small the world feels than we've ever been in the whole of history. And yet as we've gotten closer and closer, we get more and more divided. Every side feels like a victim. Every side feels like they're attacked. Or every side is attacking. And that's the left and the right. We're just in these very divided times. What is the answer to that? It's the church. It's you. It's the gospel. It's God's grace. I mean, what does that look like? It looks like reconciliation. This is why the gospel has to be the way we actually understand ourselves and our culture. Because we live in a time and a place where everything's permitted, nothing is forgiven, everyone is divided, no one is united. And to that, the church actually has to say no. God's people have to say no to that. This is not the way we're going to live. That the gospel, God's grace, is bigger and better for you and for the world than division and shame and blocking people out. That it's joy and peace and fellowship with one another and with God himself, and that's based not on us but on Jesus. Look, we can never get to this on our own. It has to be revealed to us. Which is why there's a revelation in this story. Look at all the times where Paul talks about how the mystery of grace was made known by revelation. In verse 5, he says it was revealed to God's apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In verse 10, he says it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the ruler and authorities in the heavenly places. This is what this means. That God is a God of revelation. God wants to be known. He wants to be seen, understood, and yet he's so different. He's so other, he's so high above us that we can't just figure out who he is. That he's like an artist who created this incredible work of art. And in that art you could see his wisdom and his power and his beauty. But you can just know him through that art. It's not like you can know Leonardo da Vinci through the Mona Lisa. But that artist has stepped into history and made himself known. He's done it through Christ. He's revealed himself. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, you don't want to end up on the wrong side of history? You ever hear that? Like People use it in kind of a shamey way sometimes, like, don't disagree with me on this issue, because if you do, you're going to end up on the wrong side of history, because what if, after you're dead, people found out about it? 
Uh, like that, was, that would bother anybody. Because um, <laughs> you're dead. Uh, but it's better not end up on the wrong side of history, right? But if Christianity is true, then reconciliation is at the heart of history. Because Jesus is at the heart of history. This is what God is like. He brings himself into the world. Which means that when this stuff really gets down into our bones, that we actually become agents of this revelation. This is why Paul says it's through the church the wisdom of God is made known. That life among God's people, life with you, is actually supposed to be a way for people to know God, to experience God. That in the way that you enjoy one another and fellowship with one another and are friends together and hang out together and study together and don't try to compete with one another and humble brag over one another, but accept one another based on grace. And it's a picture to the world of what it could be like to live in God's kingdom and know God. It's a way to do life differently. It's a new way for other people to see and to imagine, oh, this is a different way to be a human being. This is a different story to step into and be a student here at UNCS. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It leads to a different way to live and a different story to live in. Y'all heard a story recently. Um, imagine this. It's 1968. All, for some reason, all of my stories take place like 50 years ago tonight, um, except for one. Uh, but imagine this. It's 1968. young African-American actress named Nichelle Nichols uh, meets a guy named Gene Roddenberry. He works in TV. And they strike up a relationship, and he asks her to come to this new show that he's been developing about space. It's called Star Trek. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, she agrees, and she ends up playing this character on the original Star Trek called Arua, uh, which I think I'm saying that name right. Uh, but she's basically the comm officer, communications officer in Star Trek. And so it's like people are calling Captain Kirk, and she's like, Kirk, there's a message for you. And she's playing this character on there, but she's so busy all the time that she doesn't have uh, time to watch TV. And figure out, hey, this show is actually really good and is a pretty big deal. And after a year, she decides, hey, I'm going to leave Star Trek and I'm going to sing on Broadway. And Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, is like, hey, let's not do this too quickly. Give it a weekend. Think about it. Let me know your answer on Monday. And over that weekend, she goes to an NAACP fundraiser. And while she's there, one of the organizers of this fundraiser says, hey, Somebody here is a fan. They want to talk to you and you know, kind of meet you. They, they love your work on Star Trek. And she's like, all right, like, bring them over. And the fan comes up to her and says, hey, I love your work on Star Trek. It's the only show that I let my three little kids stay up late and watch. I think it's so good. And she looks at the fan and she's like, wait, wait, wait. Are you Martin Luther King Jr.? And it was Martin Luther King Jr. He's <laughs> a huge Trekkie, apparently. Um, and he looks at her and he says, you know, you're the only black person on TV who's not playing a servant. You're providing hope for my girls and my kids that there's a better future for us. Like, we need you to stay in this show because if you don't, then there won't be, like, an image of a black woman on TV who's an equal, like, anywhere. And she's like, well, okay, if Martin Luther King tells me to do this, I will do it. (laughs) And so the very next year, 1969 rolls around, and the U.S. lands on the moon, and it's this huge deal. But she notices, like, hey, this is all, like, white guys in space. So she goes to NASA, and she says, hey, NASA, what's the deal with all this? And NASA says, you know, 
turns out we only know white guys. And so she becomes this NASA astronaut recruiter. And Nichelle Nichols, because she had played this position on Star Trek, recruits Sally Ride and Mae Jemison, who are the first, or Mae Jemison is the first African-American woman in space, and apparently a huge Star Trek fan as well. And I tell that story because Nichelle Nichols provides this vision of what could be through this story that she's living and that she's telling. And it leads to this massive change. And when you as God's people are loving one another and being reconciled to one another, you're doing the same thing for the world. Like you're providing a vision of a better story and you're drawing people into it. Because we live in a really divided world. I mean, you feel that on this campus. We all want community, but we all walk in division. Look, when you have conflict with people, you cannot cut them out. Even if they hurt you first, because according to the gospel story that you live in, if you're a Christian, and I don't expect that for everybody here, but if you are, you consider that, I mean, we hurt Jesus first, and he sought us out and reconciled us to himself. So you can't just cut people off who've hurt you. You can't cut people off who are weird or awkward or different from you because you and I are so different from God. And He did not ghost us when He saw those differences. But He dwelt among us and He loved us and was with us. Look, for some of you, your life would be so different if instead of waiting for people to reach out to you, you went ahead and you took the initiative and you reached out to them. Look, you don't have to wait to make the first move. The gospel gives you security and love in order to live life in a different way, to actually reach out to people and be known by people and not expect them to do the, the first call and make the first move. You have security in that. It's part of what it is to reveal and be with people in this. So what's the glory of this story? What's the glory? Paul, in the very first verse, says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. And then the very last verse of this, he asks for his people not to lose heart for what he's suffering. Which is your glory? Look, Paul had the equivalent of a PhD from Harvard. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the you know, great Jewish thinkers in history. He was a guy who was on the way up, and yet he's imprisoned. He's chained. He's a prisoner for Jesus. Because he got God's grace. And it wrecked his life. It changed his life. He's undone by it. Because you see, God's grace is tied to God's glory. And God's glory is heavy and weighty. It's significant. It's beautiful. That as God's glory and His grace lifts Paul up to know God, and be known by God, it also drags him down into service. And to serve God and to serve the people that God has called him to. And so it is with you. You know, some of us are so worried that one day we won't make enough money or that we won't have a big enough house or be a significant enough person or we won't travel enough um, before we go to grad school and settle down with kids and we won't have enough crazy, awesome, wild experiences. We worry, do enough people know me on this campus? Am I networking with the right people? By building the right sort of resume. Like we're worried that are we significant? And you want to do something significant. There's something right in that. Man, do you want to do something great in God's kingdom? 
I mean, do you want to really be captivated by God's glory and do something glorious? And the beginning question is not, what will you do? It's who are you in God's eyes? That to be defined by God's grace, to be shaped by God's grace, to be shaped by the story of the gospel, is to be shaped by God's love for you in Christ. Not to have to prove yourself, not to have to show yourself significant. That if you're a Christian, the most significant thing in your life has already happened. And that's Jesus' death for you on a cross. And we feel that weight of that glory. We're brought into low, into service for him. You know, I've wrestled with this so much in my life. And if you're wrestling with this, man, talk to me after this. I can remember, I graduated from a great college, a really, really good liberal arts college. Um, it was kind of like Duke, but without basketball. I mean, so like all the intensity and the pressure and the prestige of Duke, but like the one outlet that they have, take that away. And that's the college I went to. <laughs> And I graduated, and I became an, an RF intern for two years, and I wasn't sure what I was trying to do. I was trying to figure out what I was going to be and how I was going to move in the world. And a lot of my friends, uh, I, had, I had a friend who went and had, a, had crazy awesome experiences. She went and lived in a dive shop in Nicaragua and just, like, led dive tours, and it was amazing. I had another friend uh, start a brewery in Atlanta and, like, crush it. I had a, another friend who uh, became... Um, the financial advisor and manager for a Fortune 500 company, like right out of college, make a ton of money. And I can remember, like, these were some of my best friends, like keeping track with all of these friends and graduating and then going to seminary. And I, I went to seminary because I felt genuinely called by God and called into God's service. I just could not get over God's grace. And I loved it. I still do. But man, one of the first things I did when I went to seminary was I started taking summer Greek, which was horrible, and I got a night job as a janitor cleaning bathrooms in a 24-hour call center. And it was across the street from this Taco Bell. And so there was a guy who would wait for me to clean the men's room at like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and he would go across the street, pound a cheesy gordita crunch, and then as soon as I was walking out of the freshly clean men's room, he would walk in and destroy it, like <laughs> decimate it. And I would have to go back into the men's room and clean it. And this happened like every single night that I worked there. And I can distinctly remember one night looking at this toilet this man has just obliterated <laughs> And thinking about all the things my friends were doing and, and where I'd come from and what I'd done to get there and thinking to myself, I'm too good for this. I don't deserve to be here. Like, I'm too good for this. And I'm not somebody that puts a lot of stock in God giving me direct messages. I think prayer, providence, those are the main ways you talk to God. But in that moment, it felt like God was saying to me, no, you're not. You're not too good for this. And I will tell you that I did five years of seminary. Cleaning a bathroom at night was one of the best ways to learn how to actually be a servant. To be a good dad. To be a decent husband be an okay pastor like that was where like a lot of the meat and potatoes of seminary came from 
was cleaning the bathroom at night and <laughs> clean up after this guy that would destroy it. Because when God gives you His glory and shows you His glory, I mean, He calls you into service. Look, you come from a time and a place where you walk into a room like this one and the way that you've been formed by the story that you live in is to ask yourself, what can I get out of this worship? What can I get out of this teaching? What can I get out of this community? How can I take? But the reality is, if you live in the story of grace, like God has given you everything you need in Christ. And so the question is not, what can I receive? Because you're full on Jesus. The question also becomes, how do I give? What's my ministry? Do you look at people who are awkward or different from you and think, hmm, I'm too good for this? Do you look at a community of people and think, man, I need to figure out what I can do to get as much from them and as much from like two or three other communities that are just like this? I'll just kind of drift around, and when one doesn't work for me anymore, I cut it off. But the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of the story of the gospel is not to ask, what can I receive? It's what can I give? What, what can I do to be a servant here to these people? But do you understand yourself in that story? It costs Paul to serve Jesus. It'll cost you too. There's glory in that. There's beauty in that. The trials actually make the story better. It's like, do, you have, do we have any rom-com fans here? Does anyone here like, really like rom-coms? Yeah, I do too. Unabashedly, I love romantic comedies. All right, every rom-com ever is two unlikely people meet, and there's all these things that stand in their way, but you know at the end they're getting together, right? Like sometimes there's things inside of them, like it's his pride and it's her prejudice, right? Sometimes they're star-crossed lovers, and there's all kinds of external things that stand in the way of these people, But we love rom-coms. We love the story. And we love knowing how the story ends. For all the up and the downs, there's this glory here because how hard it is for them to get together only proves how wonderful their love is and how glorious it is. It shows the value of the romance to which these two people are straining. And you can watch it because you know how the story will end. Look, when Elizabeth Bennet turned down Mr. Darcy's first marriage proposal... You knew that it was only a matter of time between before another one was coming her way, right? Like, this was going to happen. And you're just eating popcorn like, yes, bring it on. <laughs> right? Look, when you watched To All the Boys I've Loved Before, I know, right? Loved it. And you saw Laura Jean agree to help Peter get his awful ex back by signing that dating contract and having a fake romance with him. You knew that by the end of the movie they were going to get together. Like, that wasn't the issue. But what you wanted to see was the glory that would come out of how hard it was for them to get together and to see their love. Because that's the way these stories go. Look, you know if the gospel is true that you can have trials and setbacks and serve and give. Because as you do that, what you're doing is you're seeing the glory of God worked out in your life and worked out in God's love for you and grace. And that's a powerful, really, really good thing. Look, I know that it seems strange that Paul says he's a prisoner for, the, for Christ and it's to the glory of these people. 
But man, he just could not get over the gospel. He couldn't get over the fact that God had loved him. And I just want to ask, is that you? Can you get over the gospel? Can you get over the fact that God would love you and be for you, not because of what you could do or prove or any kind of merit or any kind of resume, or what family you're from or what you could do for God, but because of what God has done for you in Christ? And I hope that you never get over that. I hope that I never get over that. I don't think Paul got over that. God calls us into that because he wants us to see his glory and to live in the mystery of the history of the world, what it's all about, what your life is all about, which is his grace, freeing us to serve one another. And we just can't get over that in the person of Jesus. So I want to end with this. It's the evening of October 12th. 1931, I know, like 100 years ago. And Louis Armstrong was doing this three-day run at the Hotel Driscoll in Austin, Texas. And this is 1931, so concert prices are way different than they are now. And this guy named Charlie Black pays 75 cents to go see Louis Armstrong. Uh, Charlie's a freshman at UT Austin. And Black says he'd gone there to meet girls, which is fair, Um but he said that when, when Armstrong starts to play, it was like magic. It, would, it completely changed his life. Later, he writes in his journal, Armstrong played mostly with his eyes closed, letting flow from that inner space of music things that had never before existed. He was the first genius that I'd ever seen. Remember, this is 1931. This guy is 16 years old. He's a freshman in college, which is weird, but it's a different time. Um, He says this, It's impossible to overstate the significance on a 16-year-old Southern boy seeing genius for the first time in a black person. We had literally never seen a black man in anything but a servant's capacity. Louis opened my eyes wide and put to me a choice. Blacks, the saying went, were all right in their place. But what was the place of such a man? And of the people from which he sprang? Charlie Black, that... The freshman at UT Austin would go on to become Professor Charles Black, uh, who taught constitutional law at Yale. And in 1954, he provided the answer that Louis Armstrong had posed so long ago. What do we do with this man and the people that he came from? He was on the legal team of both white and black that helped argue successfully in front of the Supreme Court the case of Board versus the Brown of Education, which desegregated American public schools because he saw genius in a man. He saw brilliance in a man and he was transformed by it. And what I want to say is have you seen the brilliance of the glory of God in Jesus Christ? And have you been transformed by it? That God would love you and make the center of history not what we can do or show or prove but who would make the center of history a man on a cross praying for his enemies and reconciling them to himself. And I, my offer to you is to be transformed by that and to see that man praying for you and being reconciled to you and to live in the freedom of God's grace. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you um, that the center of history is not what we can do or show, or prove, but it's you. 
working out your purposes through Jesus in our lives and in the lives of all the people of the world. God, we pray that we would live in that story, that we would see you glorified in that. And God, that as we were drawn into your glory, we'd be drawn into your service. We'd be drawn into your love. We'd be drawn into peace. We'd be drawn into the power to wreck sin in the world. And Lord, to undo the evil, to wipe away tears. God, to bring life to the dead. God, be at work in us and in our lives. Be at work in the lives of our friends. Heal the brokenhearted. Bind up those who are broken. Be life for the dead. Be food for those who feel famished. And Jesus, be glorified in our lives and our community. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.